Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Accra, Ghana. I'm back after my time where my guest is from in that region, where I had a wonderful time in both Addis and in Cape Town, South Africa. And again, I'll be bringing you guests from those regions as I love to pick up new uh, personalities and, and Glocal citizens in all of my travels. So stay tuned for that. Today, let's get right to it. My guest is a global health professional with more than seven years experience in qualitative and quantitative research, data collection and analysis, public health program monitoring and evaluation, intervention design and stakeholder management. She currently works supporting multiple governments in Africa to technically evaluate diagnostic technologies by developing and conducting operational research studies for COVID-19, HIV, TB or tuberculosis, and other diseases. Passionate about public health, maternal and child health, HIV treatment access and delivery, health system strengthening, and sexual and reproductive health, she is also the host of the podcast, Utano Public Health Chats, which is a monthly conversation aimed at creating a space where people can learn more about public health work in Africa and beyond, as well as how to navigate careers in public health. Fiona Gambanga, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So let us get started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Sure. Thanks for that. So I am from Harare, Zimbabwe, uh, born and raised. Where I'm local, I'm currently based in Kigali, Rwanda, and I've been based here for over four years now, going on five. So in a way, I guess I feel local in Kigali and I feel local in Harare, Zimbabwe as well. Okay. And what would you say is your craft? So my craft is, I would say three things, right? I would say storytelling, well, actually basically two, storytelling and public health is my craft. Um, And I think even in my public health work, I'd argue I do storytelling as well because I love research. And I think that is storytelling. And in my storytelling bucket, I have poetry. I have my podcast where I interview different professionals in public health in Africa and get to hear about their career journeys and how they ended up doing the work they do and inspiring other young people to join the field, field of public health, at least to know that the field exists and this is the work that we do. So storytelling and public health. Yeah. Mm, I like the sound of that. I can, I can, I hear this ring public health champion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's something that, you know, I didn't until I went to graduate school myself and there was a public health program. I hadn't really thought about public health. I just, you know, went through life thinking, okay, go to the doctor, X, Y, Z. But the idea of not having access to advocacy and to services in the healthcare space for underserved communities in particular, and just generally the idea of what gets researched and what what do we create, continue to create knowledge around is, is highly important. So I always appreciate now <laughs> when I meet public health professionals. So let's talk about why the where. So, you know, young woman from Zimbabwe has found herself in Rwanda. How did that happen? Why the where? How did you come to be living, working, and playing where you currently are? Yeah, so... Before Rwanda, I was in school. Um, as I mentioned, I trained in public health. I, did, I got my master of public health at Columbia University in New York. I worked in New York as well for a little bit before going to grad school. And I lived in the U.S. for about seven, eight years, right, between my bachelor's and my master's degrees and working there as well. And I didn't specifically choose Rwanda, right? Rwanda kind of happened. I will say for my career, going into my public health training, And even going into my undergrad, I think I'd always known, right, that I wanted to have a focus on Africa, that I wanted to work either in Africa or on African populations, uh, whether it's in my research or whatever I was going to do for long term in public health would be focused on Africa as a population. Um, I'm primarily, you know, I'm also just generally interested in women and women's health and reproductive health and children as well. So that's always been like at the back of my head. And then when I applied to grad school as well, I kind of. I think I actually initially wanted to do like a global health certificate, but decided otherwise for other reasons, but still did like research and my internships in Zimbabwe during my master's training. So always knowing, right, that this is the population I want to work on. And then when the time came when I was about to graduate, I started job searching like everybody else was. And I was targeting global health organizations for that reason. 
not necessarily looking like I can't say I was looking to leave the US or looking to leave New York, but I also can't say I was looking to stay. <laughs> I was more so just looking for a job. <laughs> And then the job happened and the job just happened to be placed in Rwanda at the time. So they needed someone to be based. Ideally in Africa, they, there was also some focus in Rwanda and Kenya. And we had a project in Malawi and Zambia at the time. So yeah, the question came like, are you open to relocate? And I hadn't really thought about it until that time, to be honest. And so I had to kind of like take a step back and think about it. And I realized I was, (laughs) or at least I had nothing holding back, right? And I thought it was a good place in my career also, um, seeing that I wanted to be, you know, an African public health expert, that there was no other time than now to really like kind of like get on the ground, really understand, you know, the systems that um, I hope to work on for the rest of my life. So I took it without ever having been to Rwanda, <laughs> read, you know, so much about it, like only a little about Rwanda and just, you know, with as much, I, I did a couple like informational interviews with people who had lived there or were currently living there. And I just kind of took a leap of faith. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and how many years later? And four and a half years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so I guess I made the right call and it's it's been an amazing journey um, and I'm glad I made that call. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about that path for you. So you said you always knew or you were always kind of committed to public health, but how did you find your path? You, you grew up in Zimbabwe, you ended up in the States. How, how did that come to pass? Sure. So from Zimbabwe to doing my undergrad in the U.S., I was part of a program, shout out, it's called USAP. Well, it's morphed into something bigger, but I think at the time it's called the United States Achievers Program. And what it, at least what the model looked like at the time when I was finished, finishing high school and 20, now I'm aging myself, 2009. (laughs) So the United States Achievers Program really by, by design, right, was for, you know, I guess it's an Achievers Program. So for highly proficient, um, low income students in Zimbabwe, and it's a really, it's a college access program. So what they did is they did a search and they found like 30 high school students at the time. And you would go through this year long program where they help you identify colleges that you could apply for, for funding, for scholarships, coach you and help you take the SATs. And you would apply to like, I think four schools, everybody got four schools and you picked. So at the time, our college advisor was highly recommending all the girls to pick at least one all women's college. Women's college also, you know, so I ended up picking Bryn Mawr, long story short. And Bryn Mawr was really big on STEM at the time. I did like for um, A-levels in Zimbabwe, I did like sciences. So I did like math, biology, chemistry. So I was really into STEM. I really loved biology. That's how I ended up picking Bryn Mawr specifically. So I applied ED to Bryn Mawr. Yeah, and that's where I went. So <laughs> so I guess from Zimbabwe to the US, it's USAP. And like, I mean, it's still in existence. We now even have like a USAP community school. Now we start with the kids while they're like in their A-levels, so like at 17, 18, um, all through, through like college applications and stuff. And it's like been in existence for over 20 years, I think at this point. And we were like the 10th cohort or something like that. So, and again, you know, the criteria for USAP, I also feel like has also stayed with me and influenced my career choices in a way because, you know, like I said, high achieving, low income, showing like a willingness to like make a difference in the world. So that that was always something that I carried with me and was constantly like, at the back of my hand, my head of like, how am I going to make a difference, right? For where I'm from and like for the populations of like where I'm from. And I always knew, right? Like I liked biology. I enjoyed things related to health. I didn't necessarily want to become a doctor, which is kind of like the premonition to my podcast as well. Um, was kind of just like the lack of like, career guidance and how I kind of like fumbled my way to public health. And in hindsight, wish, right, that there was like, wish that I knew what public health was, like you were saying before, like, I don't know, 20, 22, 23. So yeah, I knew I I was interested in health and I knew honestly, very early on that I was interested, like, and it was always, I remember like telling other people, having conversations about this, right? When you say, oh, you're doing sciences and you're doing biology and you care about health, everyone just goes, go be a doctor or go be a pharmacist. And it, it was, and especially in Zimbabwe, because those are the kind of, kind of like rigid career paths that you have, right? Are you good in biosciences? You do medicine, pharmacy. Are you good in like the physics, the fixing things? You go into engineering. Are you good in the social sciences and humanities? You go into law. Pretty like rigid career paths. And I couldn't, there wasn't a bucket that really 
sat with me, to be honest. And going to the U.S. and having a liberal arts education, I think, actually really helped me in that way because it made me realize what I actually cared about and, and explore so many other things. So I think when I got to Bryn Mawr, I was still interested in the sciences. I was a biology major. I even stayed on the pre-med track all throughout my undergrad. Mm. It still mm-hmm. was the thing, right? It was still kind of like the expectation coming from like an African home. And I felt the need to like stick with it. But I knew even the kind of classes that jumped at me were like health policy classes or classes where we're talking about disease prevention, even though this was at an underground level. So there weren't that many of them. But I found myself drawn to those kinds of like conversations or spaces. And I still didn't have a name for it. I think probably end of my freshman year was when my dean, my advisor was like, then, oh, you know, there's actually this junior who's doing something called like, and you could do an independent major in my undergrad. And he was like, oh, she's doing an independent major in global health. I think all the things you're describing are that. <laughs> and talk to them. And I did. I set up a conversation. We're at a small college, very friendly. And we had that conversation. I still decided to stay within my major, but it was a helpful conversation to kind of just hear, like, you know, echoed back to me the things I was talking about. Like, you know, yes, women being treated for, let's say, women finding out they're HIV positive while pregnant is important so that they can get access to medication is important. But I didn't see myself as the doctor treating them. I didn't see myself as the nurse who's doing the treatment, right? I saw myself as the person having the conversations or pushing to do the work that has more ARVs to be available. And I didn't know the label for that, right? And and the answer to that is public health because it's, it's higher than the individual clinical level you're talking about it macro level. And for me, that's how I, that's the biggest distinction when I talk to people who are trying to figure themselves out. I mean, of course, there is overlap of people who start out clinical and then they go macro or the reverse, but in terms of the technical work, that's what it was, right? And I didn't see myself at the individual level. I saw myself doing the larger like research, pushing the conversation, doing more of like, how do we increase this so that all pregnant women have access right to the medication that they need. So yeah, I fumbled my way <laughs> eventually in research. And then eventually, I think also through my undergrad, was able to get an internship where I worked at the New York State Department of Health at the AIDS Institute as a program assistant. And there we worked at the federal level. So we supported the HIV quality care program basically across New York State. So all HIV providers, ensuring that they have everything that they need, the resources, they're able to track and, you know, measure all the indicators and the targets that they need to make sure that, like you're saying, vulnerable populations or unreached um, populations to get access to care. And that from there, I think, like little by little, experience by experience, it became more clear what it is I cared about and what I wanted to do. And then the, the master of public health became the natural like next step to do at that point. Yeah. Sure, sure. And you had done work in New York. So Columbia kind of made a bit of sense, I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. So I'm curious about the Zimbabwe that you left. So you haven't lived there again since you left. And Zimbabwe in the last, so it's almost 12, almost 15 years since you've been there, that's um, that Zimbabwe has changed. So, so how do you think about home, the home you left, and the home that is now your your motherland or your home, your fatherland, however you want to uh, frame it? Yeah. <laughs> we can go <laughs> this way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I to a certain extent, it's so interesting because I've had some of these conversations with other, like you know folks who are, you know, who are not living where they were born or who are not living where they're raised, right? It's beyond just diaspora, right? There are a lot of people who you were born here, you were raised here, now you live here, right? And I think for me, it's a little bit, it's so interesting that you made the distinction of like the home I left and the home that is now. Because I think from a very emotional and personal level, in my head, those are the same thing. <laughs> and I think that's only because I was born and raised in Zim until I was like 18. So I had all like my childhood experiences all through high school, all of like those core relationships for me all are set in Zim. So even when I think home or like I, I've noticed, right, when I'm especially here in Rwanda, because Rwanda is a lot of expats, people from so many different countries. And when people are doing like, let's say you're just comparing food, you're like, oh, and this is what we do. Or wait times and restaurants are like this and that, right? And people are like, oh, but in New York it's this or but in this and that. I always bring up Zim, right? I always bring up her, no matter what, because in my head, 
whether I think about it or not, that is my point of reference. And I, I don't think I don't make in my head, I don't think I make a distinction that that point of reference is probably like you're saying the 15 years ago. Right, right. A dated reference, right. Because <laughs> that's when I learned. So in my head, I think I, I tend to think of the, the Zimbabwe I left because this is Zimbabwe I grew up in. But you are right that that is not the Zimbabwe that we have right now. <laughs> and I'm always reminded, you know, every time I go home, right? There's just like, I mean, well, by and large, things are the same. But at the same time, you're always met with that slight change at the till or especially with Zim as the currency or little things are like, oh, what? We don't... Where have you been? We don't do that anymore. Or that doesn't, you know, this has changed. Like in in small ways and in big big ways, like things have changed. We've gone through like what two, three elections. At this point, we I think the landscape in terms of like technology. I was laughing the other day when I was I don't know what I needed to do on the Skype, and I just like walked out memory lane. It was hilarious because when I went to undergrad 2011, there was no WhatsApp, or at least WhatsApp wasn't mainstream, right? We used I, back in the day, <laughs> I used to call my parents on Skype. And and back then, internet wasn't even as like readily available as it is now. We had to like agree on a time ahead of time. even just like call up my brother the way I do now on WhatsApp, right? So it was Skype. I think there's a time where it was like, Vi- well, there's this purple app, Viper. Or- yeah, Viper. Right? Or something yeah. like that. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not a thing because when WhatsApp came, everybody who had a smartphone got WhatsApp. And then now you can do WhatsApp texting. Now you can do WhatsApp calls. Now you can do group calls on WhatsApp. And the, the technology landscape as well has changed. And that's allowed home to not feel so far away, which I really appreciate. So yeah, things have changed. I think on a personal level, I would like to feel like they haven't. But in my career, I definitely see see it, how it has changed. Uh, It really, you know, in terms of like, especially just doing the work and realizing, oh, there's a point when I was in high school and in our, I remember doing advocacy in our like a youth against AIDS club, trying to advocate for back then. We're trying to have the, I think it was the most recent version of the ARV so that the one whole form for children, right? And now that is mainstream. There is no advocacy needed for that, right? That's already available. Line one, line two, most of it is covered by government. So there's certain things that I know now looking at my work that I'm like, oh, we've, we're, the time has moved and things have changed. Gratefully in health, I think a lot of things for the better. Um, but with, you know, good changes, there's like new challenges as well. I think that's a good point to ask you about Glocal Speak. <laughs> so this is where I ask for a word, a phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you've come to value it as Glocal Speak. <laughs> so, yeah, so when I saw this question, I actually laughed because <laughs> I have a friend of mine. He's the one who, he's actually not Rondon, but he's been here slightly longer than me. And I've heard the phrase before, but I think this is my favorite. Like, I think it fits with your question. And it's a Kenya Rwanda term. It's Nachibazo, right? Nachibazo. Nachibazo, which means no problem, right? So just like no problem. And I feel like it's a very helpful phrase to know, even though I don't speak that much Kenya Rwanda. It's such a helpful phrase for so many reasons. Because I feel like the culture here in Rwanda is very non-confrontational. So people are quick to say that to kind of de-escalate things. <laughs> so whenever you're trying to like negotiate something or you're lost or whatever, you know, or you have to ask for an extra thing or something that really, so if you say like, ah, Nachibazo, if someone is trying to apologize and even if I don't understand, tell them Nachibazo, then they know it's okay. Like we're good. No problem. We're fine. Right. Oh, so that's okay. been like, it's my friend's favorite phrase. And after he taught me, I, I hear it everywhere. And, you know, it's the same as like, no problem, like whatever version of that, right? In, in many other places, but here it's Nachibazo. Nachibazo was, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Nachibazo. <laughs> <laughs> Have you picked up a local language otherwise? What languages do you speak? Uh, so unfortunately, no, I haven't. I can't say I speak Kinyarwanda enough to call it a language I speak. I speak English and Shona from home. And I feel like I grew up speaking both languages. Shona probably more. Shona is my first language, but grew up speaking both at home um, ever since I was a child. The English part is very interesting, especially when you fill out things, because I feel like the English I spoke in Zimbabwe isn't necessarily the same English I speak here in Rwanda. And it's also definitely not the same English I I spoke in the U.S. (laughs) Oh, interesting. 
it's not the same. I don't even know how to <laughs> distinguish it, but it's not. And I would say, at least for the Zim part, it's very obvious, right? Because in Zimbabwe, we speak British. I British English. Textbook British English, right? And then moving to the US, and people are like, oh, you're, you, you have an accent or you have a twang. And I, I didn't even know what that means because I'm just speaking. So I don't like, yeah, so not having the American accent. And also, right, British English and American English are different. So I would say certain things and people wouldn't know what that is <laughs> until I learned the American version. And then you come to like Rwanda, which is like a whole melting pot. So you get all forms of English and it's very interesting as well. Yeah. So <laughs> English, but with an asterisk, because it depends where I am. It can be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. I definitely get it. And then on the Kinyaranda, I just know how to get by. That's the best way to describe it. <laughs> like I can do money for sure. I can do directions for sure. Yeah. Like I said, I can get my way out of things by saying that because so I can go to the market and order my fruits and vegetables. I know all the words for that, but I can't really say I would get into like a full conversation with someone in Kinyaranda. And so is it easy to find language courses and resources for that? Yes. There is. I think I remember 2019 looking, but then I came in 2019 and then the pandemic hit as well. But yeah, there are definitely a lot of like places where they teach because Rwanda is a mix, right? I feel like everyone's speaking in Rwanda. And then I feel like depending on age bracket, it's either English or French, right? Because they switched from Pakistan to English at some point in the 2000s. So I feel like older Rwandans are more likely to be Francophone in Kenya, Rwanda, and then younger Rwandans speak at least both, but sometimes all three. So a lot of like language learning centers or workshops will offer trainings for English and French and Kenya, Rwanda as well. So interesting. I've come to understand that Rwanda is very much becoming a diaspora town, similar to Nairobi, in uh, particularly because of the attractiveness of the environment. Right? It's clean. It's, um, I guess, welcoming that way. So when you think about your your work, I want to kind of ask about the context of your work in a place that seems to be, you know, moving into past, you know, we have lower income nations and that type of thing. Looking at the rebuilding and, and what the, not the geopolitical, but the, eco, the socioeconomic um, statuses of where you are and where you're probably doing most of your work. Tell us about how your work has played out in Rwanda and where the, the other regions that you've been working in? Sure. So <laughs> it's very interesting with this question because I actually didn't primarily work on Rwanda for the longest of time. I've only recently transitioned. And I feel like in the past year, I've worked more in the Rwandan context because I was on a global global teams. So I'd support multiple African countries. But I can, yeah, so like Rwanda would usually be like 10 to 20% of my time. And now I'm fully 100% working on Rwanda. But yeah, like I've pulled from multiple, you're right that Rwanda is at an interesting space. I think working in Rwanda is probably one of my favorite things because, and that's probably because I work in public health. I always like to preface it as say like, I'm a public health and I like to label, label myself like a Puritan <laughs> in the field. Like I'm really big on like, right. Healthcare systems should be at the public level. <laughs> Not to make any bold political statements, but yes, right? So I feel like Rwanda is such a, it's a great space to do that. I mean, different people in my workplace, for sure, would definitely argue pro-con because like when you compare an economy like Rwanda to, let's say, Nigeria, which has like, I think it's probably 60, 40 private sector versus like public sector or even, sure. yeah, it's different, right? Whereas countries like Rwanda, your, your Zimbabwe's, Zimbabwe does have a booming private, but it's still largely public sector. Well, from our work perspective, that makes it fun and easier because you know when you then come up with, uh, when you do research, when you come up with these interventions, when you come, when you work with government, your impact is almost guaranteed to be like at the 80, 90% level, right? Because if we decide that we're introducing antigen testing for COVID at all, let's say health facility level in a country X in a country like Rwanda, because they have a strong public sector system, or at least their government is working on, you know, the public sector system to be the primary provider, right? So such an intervention off the bat by design 
right, is nationwide. And that may, I mean, of course, that means more time, more work, and more has to be done on in the implementation level. But in terms of impact to the populations, it's wide. Like the scale is pretty large. Different in contexts where you have a lot more fragmented, like providers and payers, your impact is, unless you're then, you know, then there's the whole conversation of public-private partnerships. Then you'd have to think more of that. But Rwanda has been specifically fun to work with because I think, uh, like you say, they're in their growth stage is the way I like to think of it. They're in their growth stage They, because of their history and for so many more other reasons, right? They're at a place where I find it very like invigorating, like where they want to do better, where they want to build, where they were really optimistic about their country and what they want to see. So when you have these conversations, when you're able to clearly, you know, articulate a problem with them and say, you know, we have identified this problem and these are the numbers and we've done an assessment in this and, you know, we think this could be a value add. Unless there's a real reason why not, they're more likely, right, to to be on board because better is what they're looking for. So that's, I would say that's been the biggest distinction I've seen working in Rwanda and one of my favorite, yeah. And, you know, it's so interesting because I think about where Africa is going. And and obviously they they figured out how to fund it, number one, because you cannot have such a, a level of public health if you can't figure out how to fund it. And so I'm assuming that part of the reason why there's this kind of culture of we want to do better is that everyone has decided to buy in. And so in your living there, do you really get a sense that everyone feels like I am a citizen and I have a real responsibility to be a part of this place? And then that minimizes, and and I guess, an aversion to conflict, right? Because it was such a devastating time. Do you find that that is kind of a recipe that maybe most African countries need to aspire to? Or is it a special case because the population of Rwanda is what, maybe 13, 15 million? And so it's manageable. Yes, it's manageable in a different kind of context. So how would you see, I know I've talked a little long, but how would you see this kind of approach rolling out across other regions, other countries in Africa? Yeah, it would, would, yeah, it really would depend. But yeah, you're right that from a health perspective and like working in public sector with government partners, you're right that the, the sense of like citizen, I found it very jarring to be, I, like, I won't lie. Like, having been, and like, even in my other world, like I've, I worked in Zimbabwe, Zambia. I haven't been to Malawi, but supported Malawi as well, even Uganda, other African countries, and even New York, right? I'm, I, my head, I think, actually coming from grad school, my baseline was New York and Philadelphia where I'd been, the sense of just like we, like it's it's I, but it's also me, right? It's like, like, I was like, it was, I found it like, wow, like people actually stop at pedestrian crossings. I thought it was like, I was like, oh, that's so nice. Like, it's like every man for himself, right? It's like everywhere, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So you're right that it, I do feel to a certain extent that it might just be a special case because of Rwanda's history and where they are. And they're young. Like, I mean, of course, Rwanda's been independent since the 60s, but post-genocide, right? You're looking at like, less than a generation and even and that's i also find that exciting because then we also have a very a lot of young people in government i think the new minister of health i don't think is over 45 right so young people in government and i think that also helps what you mentioned of this idea of like we of like collective responsibility and feeling like you're actually part of something and that you're moving towards it and i guess and it's within reach within your lifetime right whereas i think when you have older people in government that's a different yes they might have a sense of like we need to give back for future children but those kind of conversations around technology and innovation that's past them right <laughs> they're like and there's an age. so i do feel that in that way ronda is a little bit different but I, again, because I work in public health and I'm very optimist, I do think it's it's possible. I think I think we could use Rwanda as an example to say, yes, fine, 14, 15 million, like you say, very small country, very specific history. But if they can do it, or if they can at least try, then maybe other countries can look to that to think we can do it too. Because I used to like, I remember when I was in, in undergrad, when I was in school, right, I couldn't really take the work I was doing, right? When I'd say, oh, but like in New York State for this, we're doing these cascades and, and, and they're, right, you can't, everybody's like, yeah, but it's the US, they got the money, right? So it's quickly dismissed. 
And now I come back home. I'm like, no, this is Rwanda. This is Africa. If they can fund it or if they can look for the funds and try to figure it out, why can't Kenya? Why can't Uganda? Why can't Zimbabwe, right? I think it it, um, it just, for me, it's like a point of hope to say that, you know, it, like you said, I think the money, the resource issue is a big one, but um, it just gives us the op- option of like, maybe it is possible with like exposure to some extent, yeah. So I want to take your public-private partnership concept or, or comment in a, a little bit of a different direction in the public health space. So, you know, we have in Africa, traditionally traditional medicine. That is a lot of, in a lot of our regions, that's the first the first stop, right? So the first thing that most people do, whether it's economic or, you know, cultural beliefs is, is traditional medicine. So how are you seeing the public health sector navigating and integrating more traditional medicine into the public health space and thinking and, and frameworks for implementation? Wow. Have I seen that? No, I'm thinking, because I've worked in diagnostics for COVID. Really? that I, I won't lie. I don't think I've seen much of that. I don't necessarily think because it's not happening. I think it's just because of my scope of work. And I think for COVID-19 specifically, I remember the whole thing of the steaming, right? That was a big thing. Of, like People were steaming. I remember having to do a lot of like, what's it called? Fact checking and like information sharing with like my dad and like family members, right? Because people really believed in that. And it's not necessarily that it doesn't. It works, right? But it doesn't necessarily test you or treat you for COVID. And, and, and it, was, it, was, it was hard conversations. It was definitely a thing. I think some I've seen, like, when I would do, as part of a WhatsApp group, we were doing a lot of, like, sharing um, pre-made pamphlets and flyers, and then we'd distribute them on WhatsApp um, from different, like, sources. I mean, those kind of, like, I think the term used was, like, alternative um, medicine or alternative treatments, especially when we were, like, peak, like, let's say Delta, when the Delta variant was, like, peaking, especially in Southern Africa. Right. And there was no treatment and you just kind of like you test positive, you go home and you just hope it gets better. Right. That's where the list of like alternative treatments became long. People are suggesting this. You should chew the ginger. You should do this, do that. And I think that's a good place to start. I don't I can't think on the top of my head of like practical examples where that's gone beyond like, I guess, individual like health promotion and like sharing and to actual like, you know, guidelines or documents. I know in countries like South Africa, right, they have a big like traditional healer like community and they've done a better job of like formalizing them. I think that's the word where you actually say, we know this is happening. How do we better support? Let's create an association. Let's create some form of like accreditations. Bubble, we have that with like your nyamkutas, your traditional birthing assistants, right? Where instead of just saying, don't go, like the intervention doesn't become, don't go to the traditional birthing assistant, absolutely go to the facility. It's saying, let's train the traditional birthing assistants. Let's give them, you know, even more access to information. And because we know people in the community trust them, they can be the person to like, you know, if someone wants to do the home birth and everything is okay, but they then are, you know, equipped and capacitated to say, okay, if they have to make that call to say this person has had obstructive labor, labor, they need to go to the clinic, they can do that referral and things like that. So I think there are ways in which we could. I don't know if we have many examples of that. We probably do. I just maybe don't know as much. But something to think about. I just kind of am always in this in these regions where, you know, I've had a family member actually pass away because she opted for traditional and was ill cared for and and something that was as simple as a broken leg took her life. So so that's why I kind of really want to understand how, as you mentioned, the certifications or some kind of uh, regulatory body that not necessarily invades it because there is value to the things that have been passed down through generations, but there's always those who cut corners and there are always those who are not doing all the things that keep people alive or healthy. So something to think about. So let's talk about storytelling. Yes. So you are, we are, we are uh, kindred spirits in podcasting world. So tell us about how your podcast came about and, and how it's going. That's actually how we, we met. So side note, folks, 
We are part of a WhatsApp group called Black Women in Development. It's a wonderful group that was originated with some some women in, in the UK and it has global reach. We're all over the world now. And so that's how I knew about the podcast and reached out to Fiona to invite her to be a part of mine. So tell us, tell us more about the podcast, how it came about and uh, what you're up to. Yeah, so my podcast, Utano Public Health Chats, I started it May 2022. Okay. So slightly over, I think going on two years. And it kind of, it's perfect. Like I, the way we did this episode just kind of flows. Like mm-hmm. it really is an outcome of like my career path, I won't lie, right? As I described earlier, like the like fumbling into public health of kind of knowing at the back of my head that this is what I wanted to do, but not having a name for it, not even being sure what that would look like, not even at the beginning of my career, right? Not even knowing anybody who did what I thought I wanted to do. And even not even like, I remember people telling me, well, maybe you want to be a healthcare hospital administrator. And being like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Because then when you say you want, right? So it's like people yeah. trying to find what it is that I did yeah. or what I wanted to do. And then eventually getting to a place where like, oh, okay, it is epidemiology. Oh, community health or this or that. And then finally being like, oh, I'm in this space. And when I finally, like coming out of grad school, starting to work, right? And me just, reflecting and being like, I wish I had support, right, earlier on. And and support can look different, right? But at the base of it, I was like, I just wish I knew, right? I wish I didn't have to go. I mean, I still enjoyed the journey and I think it's 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 made for a better like story for my life. But I think it would have been great at 16 or 18, right? If I just knew that like I remember like when I was was it when we had the uh, we have like world aids day celebrations yeah and i remember going like zimbabwe does like a whole thing at the national stadium i think at the time and there's a whole parade and i went and went there and i did a poem (laughs) it was what i was definitely one of those (laughs) recite poems at events and i remember thinking to myself at that point i think i was like in like 11 or 12 or 13 thinking like who decides december 1 is the day we commemorate this hiv pandemic and, and not even knowing, right? Because the answer at that point would probably be like the WHO or like multilateral organizations. But I didn't even know. I didn't even have the vocabulary. I didn't even know these things. I didn't even know what I didn't know, basically, right? In terms of career options and what I couldn't do. So I sat and I thought, you know, and also even now having worked longer and having, because I do just care about like career guidance and like working with people. So whenever I meet people, we have conversations when I meet like my younger cousins and people and talk about, oh, you could do this. Do you like this? Do you thought about social work and things like that. Wishing that I had had those kinds of conversations where you realize there is a profession called social work. There is a profession. You could be an NP, you could be a nurse, you could be a nurse and you could do so much more with that degree. Like none of those conversations were had with me, right? Until well into my twenties and just wishing there was a platform where I could have learned that and not necessarily to have picked that as a career, but just to know that it was an option that exists. And I think that's the primary reason I started Utano Public Health Chats was really to, for Africans, especially to just realize like the world is our oyster in terms of like career options and things that we can do. And it doesn't have to be those five career paths that we were given. Yeah. <laughs> and, and especially with technology and, and opportunities, there's so much more. And also coming from USAP of like just so many opportunities out there. How do people tap into them? They need to know that they exist. So that's the main reason I started the podcast to just say, hey guys, there's this thing called public health. You probably don't know it. And I was laughing when you talked to the intro of like, oh, I never thought about it until you were thinking about like undeserved communities. And I remember like in grads, we were taught like that, you know, public health when it works best, you don't know it exists, right? You don't know why you got the PCG, why you're taking your vitamins. You just do because it's been, when it when it works well as a system, it's just inbuilt. You go for shots, you ask for this, like everybody gets what they need. Most people tend to learn what public health is in the textbook case of COVID-19, where it's like, oh, where do we go get, get tested? does this thing have a treatment or not? And there's so much misinformation. That's when we tend to then think, oh, there should be a body. Those bodies are typically existing, but they're non-funded. And that's a whole other podcast episode. But yes, to say the field exists, but we tend to not know about it, typically because it works well until it doesn't. And then we need to know about it. So I just wanted to like showcase really, like you say, storytelling, but for public health careers, just showcase different people. Cause what I also then found growing into the careers, looking for people who were like me, 
people who were had backgrounds like me, who had passions similar to mine, and trying to figure out, so what, what does that look like when I'm in my 40s and I'm working in public? What do I do? Where do I work? Right. So I was like, Let, let's let's just flash forward and, and, and invite those people and they share. Then they talk about, oh, I, I started out here. This opportunity came along. I jumped with it. Oh, this did not work great. <laughs> Don't do that. Right. So that's what I do. For an hour, an episode, I interview public health professional from anywhere in Africa. And they talk about, you know, what public health means to them, how they ended up doing that. And I just keep it going. Yeah. With a particular focus on like young women and girls, especially just so that we can have that representation. So what are some of the differing experiences that you've encountered in speaking with your your guests from, say, West or Northern Africa versus East or Southern Africa? Just kind of how, what are, what are some of those differences? <laughs> I haven't had anybody from North Africa. So if you have oh, any okay. suggestions, if anyone listening wants to bring, please come. Yeah. Um, I've definitely people from East, West and Southern Africa. Haven't had anybody from Central Africa. So work in progress. But I actually don't know if I can speak of differences, to be honest. And, and that's what I love about the podcast, actually. Is I've seen more similarities than difference. Like, I remember one of the uh, episodes, season one, I interviewed a pharmacist. And I always start asking them, like, how did you choose, like, where your career started? How did that happen? And a lot of people, and this is a theme that I never even thought about, a lot of our career choices you know, whether we like it or not, are heavily influenced by our parents and the people who raise us. So a lot of people say, hey, I picked pharmacy because my father told me I had to be a pharmacist. <laughs> it was an option. We had Dr. Nkenji from Nigeria, same thing. She was like, I, I come from a family of doctors. I was going to be a doctor. Like, it's, not, yeah. it's only after the medical degree that I decided I wanted to do something more with it and then ventured into what became a public health, a global public health career. But the first choice, the first degree choice, the high school you went to, it's our families. It's the, so that has been a very interesting revelation. It's been consistent. Unless there's been instances where people then, like maybe me or like a couple of other guests, where you then meet someone who just heavily influences you in the form of a mentor a high school teacher or guidance counselor who just introduces you into this whole new world that you would have otherwise not known. Typically, the careers we choose are the ones we're exposed to and closest to us. And that's primarily our parents and our family. So that has been a very interesting finding. I think if there are any differences, it's just the the, the details, the how, the like, oh, did I get a mask here or from not? Did I not do the masters? Did I go back and do it this or that? But the theme of like how we choose our careers, what we're exposed to, we're the same on the continent, at least so far. So, I mean, it just feels like the solutions could be so much easier knowing how much, how similar we are, right? And that, which leads me to my mindset hack question for you. <laughs> so the question is, how do you hack your mind? What is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? And this is one that you practice, one that you know of, or one that you can imagine. Hmm. Oh man, I'm going to be so basic here, but it really <laughs> okay. is affirmations. Okay. It's affirmations. And I journal, I write a lot. And so it's words. I guess the hack is the words. It's like, I have to, I recently, I think a couple months ago, I came across a Google doc and I'm not even sure what fellowship was applying for at the time, but I wrote this in back in 2017. And I think it was a prompt for a fellowship that had asked me to, and I decided to keep it, which is interesting, to write about myself 10 years from today. So I had written the years 2027. I have worked at, and I listed a couple, like three, four, five dream companies. This was at the start of my master's. And I said, I've done this. And I basically, you reverse engineer your desired 10-year plan, right? You say, I'm at the place I want to be. And I feel like I've done versions of that since I was 18. Like I've had you know, whole career paths where I imagined myself as a medical doctor. I imagined myself as a lawyer. But I what the hack for me is I write it down, right? When I imagine it, when I, I want it, or when I want to see if I want it, or when I want to want it, I write it down. And and when the words go from my head and they go on paper, I feel like stuff happens. Yeah. Because <laughs> that plan, if it wasn't for COVID, it was literally on the spot. I'm still on track for it. Nice. <laughs> like... Companies I wrote, the schools I wrote, it's all there. <laughs> so speaking truth to pen, truth to pen, right? <laughs> For me, it is. It is the writing. When I journal, when I, I, I kind of like 
even if it's his fantasies, dreams, visions, like I put it on paper and, and it's always interesting going back a year or two later and being like, oh my God, I wrote this. I am doing it now. Even the podcast, I remember when we were doing our workshops, applying into, into college, I wrote about wanting to start platforms where women could hear and listen and learn about careers. And like 10, 12 years later, I started, started a podcast as a step towards that. So yeah, speaking your words into like truth, either on paper or like affirming yourself with like affirmations. That's definitely, those are my. You've, you've reminded me of myself because I remember like my early trips to Ghana when I was in graduate school and writing about certain things that I wanted to do and looking back and saying, these are things that I'm now in the actual, because I had this big, yeah. huge policy objectives. Yeah. But I mean, I'm with, I, I totally agree with you because I've written down, my life has been a writing of I'm going to do this and then it happens. So I, yeah, that's definitely a mindset right. hack. And, yeah, it's helpful tips. So we've spoken all about you as a public health professional and a little bit of a nomad, uh, of hiring nomad <laughs> in terms of flocking from one country to the other. But we also want to know about who is Fiona when she's not doing public health uh-huh. and, and, and just kind of living her life. So I ask, typically ask if you're a reader, a watcher, or a listener, what are your sa- favorite reads, watches, or listens? Or what else do you do to uh, self-actualize in a leisurely way? <laughs> yes. What do I do outside of my work? Um, so I start food. I love food. I'm just going to, that's, I'm a foodie and I, yeah, I own it. Like, and when I say foodie, like sometimes people, I feel like everyone kind of says they're foodie. No, like I mean it. Like, it's, <laughs> like I love to cook. I love to bake. I'm learning how to bake. Anyone who follows me on Instagram is they're sick of me and my food photos. And my- <laughs> I also love to go out and eat. Like I love to go to restaurants, try new spots. I am like I think if you ask any of like my friends, like the top three things to describe me, brunch is gonna be on that list. Okay. 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 <laughs> I love brunch because I'm not a morning person, but I love brunch food. I love to dress up and eat and have a good time. Dinner is brunch. Sign me up. So I love food. I love the experience of food. Like also having been in different countries, like le- like eating food from different cultures and learning afterwards to cook them, so much fun. I would also say I love to read. I think that's the next thing I say. Spend mo- the little time I have after. <laughs> I, I you know I've been a one of my big experiences in Wanda has been being part of a women's book club here that was started a friend back in the day. So I've been in this book club since 2020. We went virtual some of the time because of COVID, but we meet monthly uh, about, you know, give or take, take 10 women every month and we read a book a month. My current favorite read that I'm obsessed about has been The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Oh. It's been one of my favorite books of the year. That, and I think this year we also read Viola Davis. That's been a read. That was one of my favorite books. We also read uh, Bozoma St. James. What's his name? Oh, okay. Saint- yeah, we read her book in Q1, I think, as well. So we, it typically ends up being a lot of African literature because it is <laughs> women in Africa that tends to be our subset of like books we read. But we we mix it like exactly. Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. It's not necessarily, it's not African lit, but we do read a lot of books by women. And then we talk about them over wine. And it's like the <laughs> highlight of my month. <laughs> Right. So uh, yeah, so I, you find a lot of my time. If I'm not talking about food, if I'm not taking pictures of food and deciding what I'm cooking this week, <laughs> I'm thinking about the next book I'm going to read. I love poetry as well and reading or shopping for books. I think, yeah, that's how I spend my time. Yeah. Do you have a go-to brunch spot in Rwanda? Oh my God. Do I have a... Or Kigala, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, we've done the rounds. I mean, it's been four years. I feel like heaven, heaven restaurant in, in, in Kyohu, I feel like it's, it's the good medium, right? Because again, I told you I can go on. Like there's like, are you a Instagrammable place person? Are you like, do you want the best omelet that can be given? Or do you want unlimited mimosas? Do you want, but I think heaven is like the good spot because they do a buffet. I love their, like they have a pancake station. They are my spot. <laughs> Yeah. So we have a we have a go to spot recommended by a foodie, a bona fide foodie, to go to in. <laughs> it's in a suburb of Kigali or in Kigali. Yes. Yeah. Okay. In Kigali. Kigali. Okay. So we'll put that in the show notes as well as your Instagram. 
And so we can find you there and follow you there. So Fiona, this has been so awesome. I'm, I'm so happy we got to meet and, and talk about everything public health and more. And so as we sign off for today, I want to ask if you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience. I don't have any. I think I've shared all my things. I think life is about living, man. I think just embracing whatever thoughts, especially what we just talked about, about the like affirmations and writing, you know, truth to power or putting your thoughts and your visions on paper has been the the leading theme, at least right now. So I think that's a key thing. And, and really, I think especially for like women uh, and more specifically black women, just like really owning ourselves and owning our stories. And I think there's power to that. That's why I'm really big on like podcasts and all these platforms where we get to share our own stories. I think that's what keeps me going. So yeah, maybe I hope everyone finds what keeps them going and that they lean into it. Yeah, nice. There was one other question I wanted to ask, which I've been asking a lot of my guests lately is, is where do you see AI in your public health space? had this as like a draft tweet in my head but I was like don't be too cocky uh, <laughs> but for me I think AI is a tool right I've seen I think because I also you know partly identify as a creative I mean I am I write poetry so I in those spaces I feel like there's been a lot of like fear with AI and like they're gonna write our stories and and, and all of that in public health, I think it's definitely a tool. And I think the question has always been like, are you scared it's going to take your job? And I can comfortably say no. <laughs> like, I do feel like the work that we do, like beyond just like, can you run an analysis or can you do this? Can you do that? There's definitely the technical things. That's what I'm saying. AI can be a tool. And we're adding it to the toolbox of so many other tools that have come and we are open to them. But I think there's always going to be the human aspect that we need. You need the people who understand the context of countries, of of districts, of the patients that they're seeing, of, you know, the trends of why people are afraid to go to the hospital or afraid to get tested and things like that. And I don't see AI like replacing that anytime soon. So I think AI, we can embrace it as a tool to kind of help us become better practitioners. But I think the human aspect is always going to be not necessarily more important, but it's going to be important as well. And it's kind of like about blending the two, right? Um, And not one preceding the other. And I, just to add kind of my two cents on it, I'm finding that until we understand how to train our own AI in Africa, it will never reach the level of replacing so much of who we are because the the large data models are not, they're not seeing us unless we see ourselves. And we're still on that journey for ourselves, right? Before we can even download ourselves into into these softwares, we are still figuring that out for ourselves. So it's still, it's great, but I think it's a journey and we're still on it, yeah. Sure, sure. All right. Well, folks, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us Tuesdays with new episodes at localcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcast. Please do check out the show notes. They're always very rich and tell the stories further of my guests. And again, I always like to ask, leave us a review. It helps others find great content on the internet. So until next time, bye for now. <laughs>